Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 117 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the Riddlemaster Sphinx. I feel like I'm in for a bad day if you're going to be quizzing me, giving me a bunch of riddles. Well, no, I just wanted to tell all of our listeners about the hottest new tech in Mono Blue. That's all. Riddlemaster Sphinx is the way to go. What what card is that even? It's it's not a real card. Do you ever want to use our powers for evil, though? Like, just see if we can get a bunch of people to pick up. Riddle Master Sphinxes next week and see them pop up in the top eight. I don't want to do it to like harm anyone's chances, but I really want to see if we can just have that kind of influence and then see Riddle Master Sphinx propagate all over Magic Online. And then you're facing Riddle Master Sphinxes on Arena. Who knows what the limits are? I think you need some amount of justification rather than like, here's my deck list or like this card is busted, you know? So I don't, I don't think we have that kind of power. Yeah, and in this instance, Riddle Master Sphinx is quite awful, so <laughs> certainly not the secret tech. But it does fit in with the theme of our show because there's some questions to answer, Jerry. You're preparing for the Pro Tour. We're getting towards the nitty-gritty now. You're just a couple weeks out, less than a couple weeks out, really. And I, I think there are still a host of unanswered questions about this format that we really need to get to the bottom of. It's It's one of those things where the more information you get, you just kind of like get those questions answered with more questions. It's like an episode of Lost. Right. There's there's never any clarity. The others are constantly popping up with like this weirdo new Jap- Japanese technology that just might be the best deck. And there's all kinds of nonsense going on on a week to week basis. So it it is tough to keep up with for sure. So last weekend, like mini snapshot in time, I think we nailed it. We We had mono blue aggro pegged as the deck to play. And sure enough, it won the open, which... I don't think it's that surprising, but it's always kind of nice when that sort of thing happens. And we had another. Uh, so Robert Wagner Crankle won the tournament. Be shame not to mention his name. And then Tan and Grace also top eight. And then you see a bunch of them littering the, the top 64 and everything. So it is cool to have called it. It is cool that it got exactly first place. And I know that there are some, you know, like, oh, he got lucky because his opponents got mana screwed type of things going on. But realistically, uh, that deck is slash was great and it will likely continue to still be good but the cat's kind of out of the bag now and like for that snapshot we nailed it well it's also a very good lesson i mean even going into last week as the hype built around mono blue people were saying oh i'm a little scared to play this deck this week doesn't everyone know isn't everyone ready at this point for not mono blue no they were not clearly they were not this speaks to you know information cascades and how quickly information disseminates across the magic community. You may have listened to our show. You may have been in on the joke. A ton of people were not. I didn't see any kind of real meaningful adaptation from the field at large to account for the presence of mono blue aggro. 
and Robert Wagner Krenkel was rewarded with the first place. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Cameron Sullivan, who took my list that I posted in the Discord, or excuse me, in our Patreon page for our $3 and up supporters, along with my sideboard guide, and piloted that to a very fine ninth place finish, just barely missing the top eight. So shout outs to Cameron for using the game-approved technology at uh, Star City this past weekend. To be fair, we don't know that Cameron used your sideboarding guide. Oh, okay, fair enough. I don't want to give myself <laughs> too much credit. Uh, but Cameron, did he changed a card in the list as well. He did not play my Mystic Archaeologist and instead chose to play Jace Cunning Castaway. I don't know what his review was on Jace Cunning Castaway. We'll have to check in with him and see. Jace seems better than Archaeologist. I like the idea of that. But yeah, uh, it looks like Cam missed out on Breakers. He was also 12 and 3. So right. uh, virtual three copies in the top eight. Yeah, an impressive performance. And, you know, we we told you all the reasons why last week this deck was primed to succeed. Average CMCs of opposing decks were very expensive, a lot of sorcery speed nonsense, and all of your spells are super cheap and cost one, and your gameplay patterns are super flexible. And, I, I mean, I still love this deck. I've still been playing it on Arena. I'm still quite pleased with it. I still feel like my skill with the deck is improving over time. So, I mean, if if I had to play a tournament this weekend... I'd probably play mono blue again pretty happily, you know, maybe with some mild sideboard changes. But if I had to play the pro tour, I'd certainly want to be considering some other options. Yeah, well, you know, let's slow down a bit. Let's talk about this weekend. We have Grand Prix Memphis, and I don't know if there are more RPTQs still happening. There are. Yeah, the last set. Well, actually, I don't even know if they're the last set of RPTQs because they're really weird this season and cover like four weekends. There is another set happening this weekend, though, I know for sure. Okay. Yeah. So that's good. So, I mean, there's going to be a lot of standard being played this weekend and you saw the hype building into SCG Dallas and then you see Mono Blue actually win the tournament. Now, what do you do? Is it, is it one of those things where it's like now the cat's out of the bag, everyone's going to be prepared and you just can't play this deck again? Because I don't really think that that's the case. No, I have very real questions about this deck. And one of the things that it this deck really calls to for me is Dark Ascension Error Standard. So let me take our listeners back on a little bit of time travel here. So at the PT for Dark Ascension, kind of the big story was Spirits deck played by John Finkel. It was like a blue-white aggro deck. You still use Delver Secrets, but it now included Skull Captains and Phantasmal Images to copy those captains, creating hexproof boards and generally just winning combat in the air. And it was all a buzz. And meanwhile putting a copy in the top eight of just the most boring stock Delver list you could ever possibly have was my old friend, Matt Costa. And I talked to him after the tournament, even before the tournament. And I remember just being like, your deck is so boring. This is just a boring deck. Like, why would you do this to yourself? This is clearly level zero. And if we go back in time, I think Matt, we'd often remark that his decks were very level zero, right? He was just like very by the book, an incredible player. So he was able to get away with it. But a lot of times it felt like his technology was a little bit behind just because he could rely on that play skill. But he was just like, look, this is the best deck. It does absolutely everything. There's no problems it can't answer. If you have the correct sideboard plans and the correct configuration, you will beat every deck in the format. And I was struck by that. But ultimately, if you fast forward three months into this format, Matt proved to be exactly right. He understood that Delver was just the actual best option. And I'm starting to kind of get that feeling about Mono Blue. I don't know. Am I crazy for thinking it's maybe on that level? No. So I have a lot to add to this discussion. This is great. I'm just over here like giggling internally while you're telling this story. Good, first of good, all, I'm glad. First of all, Matt Costa, A plus, like both 
you know, player, human being, and just for his BS meter, right? Oh, yeah. Everyone, everyone is doing like these fancy things with Rock Skull Captain. And the the logic behind it was that Lingering Souls is good against Delver. Therefore, we should build a, a Delver deck with Lingering Souls. And this is sort of my fault because I was working with them for this tournament and Sam Black came to me like Wednesday or Thursday before the tournament. And he's just like, yeah, I had this idea for a great deck, but like I would really like to get Lingering Souls in it. But like the mana base doesn't work. And he, this was him in my hotel room. And I just like literally took a notepad and like wrote down a mana base, handed it to him. And that's what they registered. Okay. So you're directly at fault for forcing them to play a worse deck. Continue. Well, he, he had the idea and I don't know. I mean, to be fair, I played the deck too. I finished in the top 25, but the entire time I was just like, God, this deck is horrible. So it was bad. actually pretty sweet for that, for that one tournament when nobody knew what was going on. I think it gained a lot of equity from surprise value as decks often do, but as the format evolved, it very clearly showed its weakness almost immediately. You know what I learned after that, though, is that like you play turn three Geist of St. Draft on, yeah, on turn three, and then you're just like, yeah, surprise. And they're just like, ah, I'm dead anyway. Right, you know? right. Can't it's really just, overcome that. Like, oh, yeah, you get this equity when you play like Drog Skull Captain, and people are like, what the hell are you doing? But then they beat you anyway because your cards are bad, you know? Mm-hmm. No, that's fair. So, yeah, I was, I was very jealous of Costa and basically did what he did after that tournament where I think there was like the GP and DC where I played the spirits deck again, because I was just an idiot. But after that, I went back to Delver and I think like the very last tournament I played was one of the invitationals. And it was like, you know, Delver with mirror and crusaders or whatever. I should have just been Delvering the whole time. Delver was good. There was no reason to mess with it. Yes. People did things to get a little bit better against you, but it didn't, fundamentally change things and then there are also times when like delver had a bad week and then people weren't really concerned with you and i i feel like the same sort of stuff can happen with mono blue where the strategy is strong enough on its own to just survive through all that stuff and it is not as good as delver it's not even like remotely close but at the same time like what what are people gonna do to actually beat up on your deck like they play an extra cast down in their Sultai deck like that's it i mean maybe they actually test the matchup and figure out how to sideboard because i think that was probably where you gained a lot of percentage points before but ultimately the deck is still going to be good going forward it's just it's a metagame consideration right i think so and i I do think there's a lot of cleanup people can do with understanding their role as the opposition for the mono blue deck. (laughs) Let me spoil it for you right now. If you are ever tapping out to play Hydroid Crisis against me, I'm just thrilled. I'm absolutely over the moon that you've chosen to spend your turn in that fashion. And I don't think people really get that. I think they're like, oh, this is a big flyer. This has to be good against this mono blue deck. And granted, it's all about other options, right? So if you don't have other options, you can still make a case for keeping in your Hydroid Crisis in post-board games. But it's not a good card against the mono blue deck. And I'm very happy to see it on the other side of the battlefield in most cases. And so little things like that, I hope people will adapt to over time and find that as a way to push back on mono blue. But you can't deny the fact that if mono blue executes its fundamental game plan, you are denied access to the game in much the same way Delver was able to deny an opponent meaningful access to the game. And you're right. The tools for Delver to do that were much better. Things like Ataxian Probe and Vapor Snag. There's just like a a preordain. There's a raw consistency and efficiency there that this mono blue deck is never, ever going to be able to duplicate. Even the the real slam dunk is something like Rune Chanter's Pike, where just every single card in your deck becomes insane as the game drags on. 
and we're lacking some of that in mono blue aggro to be sure but still the best mode of mono blue aggro denies absolutely every deck in the format meaningful access to gameplay and that's not something you can really overcome you can take small steps to get better but you have to ask yourself the question are those small steps really worth it what are you giving up by playing the second cast down and now you don't have your Vraska's contempt to kill a teferi that hits the battlefield and you're right. worse in five other places you know or you don't have mortify so you can't kill the wilderness reclamation are people going to be able to make those meaningful changes at a stage where mono blue may be one of the best decks, but it's not like it's taken over the format. It's not like you only play mono blue when you queue up an arena match. It, it hasn't reached that level of permeation yet. So I, I don't know. I, I think if I had to play a tournament this weekend, if I was playing the RPTQ, I would still play mono blue aggro right now. I think that enough people are still going to be playing Esper and Sultai and the Nexus decks and the Gate decks and stuff like that, that mono blue is still going to be good. However, if things shift dramatically away from that and suddenly there's a bunch of mono white aggro and maybe mono red makes this resurgence or figures out what the hell it's supposed to be doing in best of three or for whatever reason people start playing is it drakes a bunch like mono blue does have bad matchups and it it's just a matter of whether or not people are actually playing those decks. But for, for the most part, is it drakes just seems like worse than mono blue in general where you have it, from the is a drake side you have a leg up against mono blue and you're slightly better against the white aggro decks but you're kind of way worse across the board so i don't even necessarily recommend that anyone plays drakes unless you're specifically trying to hard target mono blue i think is it drakes is the 48 percent deck that feels really good like it just feels like you have a lot of meaningful decisions and it it's almost legacy-esque in its card selection, and good players like that a lot. They feel like they have a lot of control over the game, but short of mono blue, where are your favorable matchups? And if we're talking about mono blue being what, like maybe 6% of the format, and that might even be generous, I don't think you can choose Drake's based only on that, at least at this stage. Obviously, things can always change, but as it stands now, uh, I would also push people away from is it Drake's, and it also feels like that particular archetype is very stale right now. I haven't seen it as a Drake's list in a very long time where I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I will say there was the splash green list. Again, it wasn't even necessarily something I was crazy about, but props to Jonathan Job for trying something different because I don't think these stock builds of Drake's are really going to make any actual impact in the format. Maybe they should be getting a little bit lower to the ground. Maybe you need to look at things like maximize velocity again. I don't know. Maybe they want to be more like mono blue. And then you have to answer the question, well, why aren't I just playing mono blue? So I, I don't have an answer, but the baseline of is it Drake's deck, not impressive whatsoever. I would also agree. Not a good choice presently. Yeah. Agree a hundred percent. So I don't know. I, we're, we're kind of in this world where things are going to keep shifting. And I think the, the matchup split is very polarizing where you have decks like Sultai, Gates, Nexus, and Esper on one end. And then you have like mono blue, mono white, mono red, is it Drake's on the other? So it's like you just have polar opposites of these go over the top of you mid-ranger control decks and these one drop aggro decks and there's not a whole lot of room in between just because the two poles are like coming at you from such wildly different angles and i do think that there are ways around that i think that rakdos is a color combination that can potentially handle the aggression while also being able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe in the long game with these decks so we might see some more of that but right now, it kind of just looks like it is, it's aggro's format. 
That's an interesting take because I don't think most people would really define things that way. I mean, if you look at the headline grabbers, it's, it was a lot of crisis in week one. That was kind of the big thing. And as time has gone on, it's always been, when does wilderness reclamation just break in half? That's certainly something everyone has their eye on. And I think in the midst of that, people aren't particularly focused on these aggressive decks. So it's interesting that you place that as the pressure point for the format. There's just so many different ones and they're all very good for a bunch of different reasons. And I don't think people are necessarily necessarily looking at them in in like macro archetype sense, right? Where if you look at mono blue plus mono white plus mono red plus even counting is it Drake's under that umbrella, which I think is accurate. Like is it Drake's will fold to a bunch of like essence scatters and, and doom blades for the most part, you know? I think that aggro is like 40% of the metagame. And like, that's that's huge. I don't think anyone is looking at it like that. So maybe maybe part of the reason I'm not inclined to look at things that way is just a misnomer problem. Maybe a better way of stating it is just like creature-based decks versus non-creature-based decks. Because, I mean, I, I think it's a stretch to call something like Is It Drake's aggro, but it's certainly creature-based. You're right. It, it bears those same hallmarks, those same weaknesses. Uh, cast down is an excellent card against it. And there's that's kind of how I would define these decks, the decks that are really impeded by efficient removal and efficient creature-based counter magic. And in that instance, absolutely. That's like 40% of the field and a good way of kind of being dichotomous about what's going on in this format. It's it's one drop aggro and just, or not just guy, is it has a one drop, right? Yeah, it but, has Terramander now, yeah. Yeah. So uh, just a lot of the cards overlap and like as far as efficacy. And then if, if we are positing that is it Drake's is basically worse than mono blue, I think that smart people will eventually discover that and then potentially make the switch. So, right. Yeah. I mean, mono blue has anywhere from eight to 12, one drops. The mono white decks have like upwards of 21 drops. Mono red has eight potentially some only play four, you know, but it's like, this is, this is the, the kind of the other pole that you're forced to interact on is like, people are going to start attacking you on turn two. And I don't think a lot of people have looked at like, Oh, 40 of my, 40% 40% of my opponents are going to be doing that. Yeah, and it's a tale as old as time. Tapped lands versus one drops, right? <laughs> the trade-off yeah. of consistency in your mana base versus just getting beat down immediately. And the fact that you're taking damage from your mana base as well. And so thinking of things that way, it makes a whole lot of sense where you're, you're excited about something like Rakdos, which doesn't have the same kind of ultra painful mana base that you may see out of you know something like Soltai or esper or any other three color deck really yeah and even aside from that you see people in this like thief of sanity arms race where they're like all just jamming more and more copies into their main deck and it's just it's crazy to me it just it doesn't make any sense so why don't you tell me a little bit more about rakdos because you mentioned it's a deck you could see addressing these things i'm assuming you're uh, alluding to this deck that's come out of japan in recent days so uh, the the Japanese one is uh, more creature heavy, Midnight Reapers, Kitesail Freebooter, and Despawn of Mayhem. And that is not really the strategy that I want to gravitate towards, even though okay. it might be strategically superior. So that is definitely on my to-do list for, for things that I need to actually try. But the deck that I've, I've been climbing with in best of three arena is 
basically Rakdos midrange, pretty similar to the one that Jody Keith made top eight with in Dallas, actually, except I have like two copies of status, two copies of find. And the biggest takeaway I think is damn, how good is rekindling Phoenix right now? Unbeatable. Like as someone who's playing mono blue, there's not a card on the planet that makes me more sad. And the crazy thing is that as there's more mono blue, not only are incentivized to play rekindling Phoenix against it, but all the cards that are good against Rekindling Phoenix are just awful against Mono Blue, and you never want to play them in a million years. So if that's the pressure point of this format, and it's pushing people towards different removal decisions, oh my goodness, is Rekindling Phoenix just perfectly poised to run roughshod over this format? Yeah, and I mean, we're talking about cutting Vraska's Contempt in favor of cast right. downs and stuff, and that's exactly what's going to happen. And then you're going to see decks like Esper Control, where either they go in one direction, they're like, oh, I have to main deck these Thief of Sanities, or they're like, oh man, I need cheaper cards to beat up on Mono Blue, and they start having like fungal infections or duresses or whatever, and then, you know, they're likely cutting on Vraska's Contempt and Mortify and stuff like that, and then Rekindling Phoenix is even better, but when you have four Phoenix, even against a deck with three Vraska's Contempts, it's like this: the numbers are still in your favor, you know, like as long as you are doing things that make them spend their counter magic, right? Because obviously four mana sorcery speed creature is not very good against counter spells in general, but right. I'm, I'm doing my best to play things like treasure map theater of horrors, you know, Legion war boss even counts to some degree, but even outside of rekindling Phoenix, like you have goblin chain whirler, which I don't think is, it's not a thing that you necessarily have to play. I, I just think it's kind of like easy mode where it very clearly lines up really well against mono blue and the, mono white decks or mono white with a splash so i've been looking at those but yeah the japanese one was just like straight rakdos had a bunch of creatures and it's just kind of like yeah i have i have big creatures in removal which is going to be great against aggro and then their plan is ultimately just like kill the things that matter and then race them whereas uh the rakdos deck or the big red deck is kind of just like kill all of your stuff and then play a big thing yeah a lot of stuff i love about jody heath's deck and rakdos in general i I've seen a lot of MPL streamers playing this deck over the past week or so. I, I watched uh, Martin Juza play it just maybe last night or the night before. But it's striking how long this deck can go and how effectively it can do so against something like Sultai. So his setup had Memorial to Folly, the Black Memorial, if that's the right one. Yep. As as well as just four Rick's Mahdi Reveler, which are basically always on in the late game and drawing three cards, and then the treasure maps, and then Dire Fleet Daredevils as two for ones all over the place. And it just generates an incredible amount of card advantage for what's just a dumb red black deck. And it feels like we're getting back to a place, if you remember, the last time red black was incredible and the deck could just do everything. Well, a lot of the same tools are still present. The same sticky threats, the same kind of sources of card advantage are all there with some new tricks. You mentioned things like Chain Whirler status, which, as I've said from the beginning of this format, I completely believe in. And the boards that I have seen in games over the past you know, couple of weeks, they get crowded. They get really overdeveloped. And as I mentioned, this deck can effectively go long. That plays perfectly into the hands of setting up something like status Chain Whirler. So I, I buy that as an inclusion in the format. 100%. And then you're going even longer. I'm assuming if you're doing that kind of stuff, you're getting access to things like fine finality and postboard games and have effective sweepers. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for Rakdos slash Jund builds as they stand right now. Yeah, I, I think 
Rekindling Phoenix is huge. And then if you do want to do the grindy thing, which that's just the thing that speaks to me normally, you know, it's like, I, I'm just like, can I grind these people? Yes. Okay. Let's try that. And then if I, if that ends up not being a great plan, then I will try the, the Japanese Rakdos thing, which is like, just play spawn of mayhem and kill people, which, you know, is not appealing, but is also very effective. But yeah, like having Rick's Monty Reveler, I have two copies of find in my deck right now with only six green sources and you have direfully daredevils to backpack off of salt eyes finds. So mm-hmm. yeah, you actually just end up going pretty long. And then if the board does get cluttered against salt eye or whatever, you always have chain whirler status to fall back on. And then you have things like treasure map theater of horrors. Uh, even the eldest reborn can get you a, a lot of weird card advantage. And then you have plague crafter, which is just the perfect card against Esper from a mid-range deck like this. And if you're if you're playing Sultai, I think that uh, Plaguecrafter is like another thing that you need to increase your numbers on a little bit. Uh, it's also just good against Izzet Drakes and a lot of situations against Mono Blue Aggro. But against Esper specifically, they're going to Thief of Sanity you or Teferi you, and that's it. Yep. Yeah, it it does a great job of lining up with all their ways of potentially beating you. So I buy that card as an inclusion too. If you see a pronounced weakness for Rakdos strategies as they stand right now, where how would you identify that? Like, what's the problem point for these Rakdos decks? Are they vulnerable to decks that go wide? Can they keep up? Because the red sweepers are kind of meh right now. They don't have a great sweeper option outside of Deafening Clarion, which you obviously don't have access to. You have Finality, but we all know six mana with no accelerants can be a very large problem against these super aggressive white decks. Can you realistically just one for one them and keep up that way? Yo, treasure map is an accelerant by one turn. Uh, Okay. It is. I can't argue with that, (laughs) but yeah, other than that, you can play fiery cannonade. If you're playing chain whirler, you can't play cry the carnarium, but chain whirler is arguably better anyway. So the, the real problems that I found are just sometimes like, in assault eye goes over the top of you gates goes over the top of you the nexus decks go over the top of you like that mm. that is the problem with mid-range in this format period and i think that this deck does a reasonable job with things like duress and carnival carnage and just you know the random disruption in the clock where you get to play sort of this disruptive aggro deck but you don't you don't do it particularly well and then there are the games where it is just like a straight grind on card advantage, and that's fine. You can actually go toe-to-toe with them on that game. But then when they start playing like Crassus for eight or whatever, like you're just going to fall behind, you're going to get buried, and that's it. Similarly to if Esper has a Teferi in play for three or four turns, like you're just going to get buried. You have like this very, very small window to keep up with these decks. And if you don't, you just lose, which is not a great place to be. And then there are things like the Nexus decks, which are just pretty legitimately just a bad matchup. Uh, I have six discard spells in the board and try and go up to four war bosses or whatever, but you have very few cards that actually matter against them. Hmm. There's an interesting limitation on the decks of this format in the form of those Nexus decks, which quite frankly, still haven't taken off. I don't think they are the best choice presently, but they are getting better. I think that's fair to say. You go back to the Magic Online PTQ PTQ winners list. It looked better than the last takes. Uh, And I think now these blue-green lists also kind of look better. I love the fact they're playing four Memorial to Genius in their mana bases. That's a great, great inclusion in combination with Wilderness Reclamation. So they're starting to do a lot more right 
Uh, Frilled Mystic as well, being included in the deck feels right to me, having just a clean win condition that also doubles as a way to mitigate your opponent's plays in the early game. All that seems correct to me, but they're not there yet. But they still have a role to play, and it's limiting decks like this from really getting a foothold and keeping them down from just beating up on these aggro decks. I also played against a version of just Simic Nexus where they had the eight Explore creatures and then sideboarded into Wild Growth Walker. And the Explore creatures were like kind of great because it makes Nexus of Fate actually do something. They kind of function as early removal spells and they Mm -hmm. help you hit your land drops. And then Wild Growth Walker is the perfect sideboard card. That's a cool take. Uh, It sounds kind of trite and dismissive, but it feels like the vast majority of games I lose when I'm playing Nexus strategies just when I miss a land drop. And like they have no catch-up mechanism. They are completely reliant on doing their thing exactly as they planned it out and just going through turns one through four with that kind of perfect progression. And you stumble for a second and there's no possible way you're catching up. You just don't have those kind of tools in your deck. So adding that consistency engine has a lot of appeal to me. Yeah, honestly, that's that's basically what it feels like playing Rakdos too, where it's like if you fall behind on the board against aggro, you lose. If you fall behind in the card advantage, go long arms race against controller midrange, you lose. And yeah, I guess like Nexus is kind of in a similar spot. That's what terrifies me about these like 24, 25 land decks with no branch walker ranger packages it just feels like there's too many games that i might be denied meaningful access to uh, by virtue of just missing a third land drop missing a fourth land drop and not being able to play my spells on time and there's kind of like this barrier that if you look back the last format i think red black mid-range decks basically overcame that they didn't have any kind of filtering but their spells were just so good in comparison to what everyone else were doing that you could get away with it and your two drops were super impactful here though your two drop is like a quasi four drop that you're not super happy with treasure map is doing some of that work so points for treasure map there even if i haven't liked it in some other strategies i see why it's absolutely essential here but i have some concerns about the rakdos decks i want them to be really good i love this type of strategy but it does feel like there are some limitations in place that prevent them from really shining in this format and chief among them are the reclamation decks oh yeah for sure i mean i i would just hope to uh, you know, get into the winner's bracket effectively right. and then just stop, right. start dodging them. But like even the, I think the 7-0 bracket in Dallas had three of them or something. So, mm-hmm. you know, what what are you going to do? Like those decks are going to do well until they do poorly and you could just get caught up in that. But I mean, Jody started like three and two or whatever and ended up making top eight. So well, that's interesting. Found his sweet spot eventually. Yeah. It's got to beat up on all the bad decks in the format. Good strategy. It is a strategy, that's for sure. Rakdos Guildgate is a strategy. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that's where I fall in this format. I think there's kind of this long list of questions that I've been bouncing around in my brain that if I were preparing for this Pro Tour, it would be pretty high on my priority list to get some concrete answers. And I alluded to one of them. I I just can't shake this concern that Mono Bloom might just be Delver and maybe my time is best spent figuring out the best sideboard plans, the best 60, and and just locking in and getting the optimal builds down. And I think some players will choose to do that and find success. The other question, and again, I also alluded to this, do we actually know the best Wilderness Reclamation deck yet? Is there just something that we're not looking at? Are we too honed in on Nexus of Fate builds? Are we too locked into these color combinations? Do we really need blue in our deck? Or is this card just so powerful that we're kind of incentivized to find other avenues? And I think ultimately, 
where I fall on this is that we have, to some extent, figured out good things to do with wilderness reclamation. And may there be more optimal things? Yes, I can buy that. But the problem is whether you find those optimal things or not, you're still facing the same limitations. The limitations are always going to be negate. They're always going to be spell pierce. They're always going to be mortify until your deck is just like, oops, I also have a wilderness reclamation and I can leverage that. But I don't care at all. It's just like incidental value. And then at that point, it's like, well, why am I doing this? Can I just do something else in that slot then? So uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's going to be an actual super impactful home for wilderness reclamation as long as everyone continues to appropriately prepare. And when the vast majority of decks in the format play blue and start their sideboards with four negates, they've all already prepared to some extent. Yeah, that's sort of true. I mean, I I think the best reclamation deck is a deck that is actually just really good against aggro. And then you can just kind of figure it out against like control and mid-range because you have things like, you know, say say you play Teamer or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Then you have access to things like Niv-Mizzet. And you already have a lot of incentive to just max on things like Chemister's Insight anyway. So as long as you can stop Teferi from resolving and you have a threat that is difficult for them to interact with, I mean, I, I think you're in a pretty good spot regardless, even if they're just negating and duressing the crap out of you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Just like have your payoffs that aren't Wilderness Reclamation be hard payoffs. Stop messing around with these little half measures and just be like, here's my haymaker. Can you beat it? And Niv Mizzet does that job very, very well presently. Yeah, I, I do think that there are situations where, and this is this is from playing Teamer and versions kind of like the Simic deck where you have like some creatures to beat down and some card drawing and stuff, but like maybe you don't have Nexus of Fate. And you get into these situations where you finally assemble your combo and start doing your thing, but it's like a turn too slow because you don't have an actual I win. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what the card Nexus of Fate is, where... You, you assemble everything, and then your opponent just doesn't get another turn, effectively. Right. And even, like, the niv ones, it's just like, oh, like, I was a, a turn too short or whatever. And if if you don't play Nexus of Fate, you have those problems. But then if you do, you have these early game problems where you have, like, Nexus in your hand, and they're mortifying your Wilderness Reclamations and stuff like that. So it is it is tough, man. It's not easy. But I do think that if you actually do figure it out, then you're going to be really rewarded because I, I still think that the mana advantage that Wilderness Reclamation gives you is just straight busted, but I can't really justify even trying to make it work in a field of mono blue because you would need so much spot removal to actually you know, keep them contained and make it so they just don't kill you, and then you still have to deal with like Spell Pierce and Wizard's Retort and stuff. It's just like the card Reclamation just does not seem like the way to actually beat those decks. Right. It doesn't line up well against what they're doing whatsoever. And it's probably for the best. I mean, I think were there not checks on this card, we'd all be over it at this point, completely over it, because it is a busted card. Uh, One of the strongest mana engines I've ever seen, certainly. I want to give kind of a behind the scenes peek. I went silent for a moment because I had to do some research because I was thinking about a card that has seen just no play whatsoever. And then I started thinking to myself, wait, is this card even in the format anymore? So I had to go check and make sure it was still in the format. We keep talking about these decks that could potentially have good setups against things like Mono Blue, be very removal heavy. And then there's this looming problem of, oh, Teferi is problematic. Like, how do I actually answer that card? And then I'm like, is Sorcerer's Spyglass in this format anymore? Because I haven't seen a copy in ages. Oh, yeah. 
And it's there. It's, it's still here. There's no abrade in the format anymore. There's no real super consistent, widely played artifact removal. You know, we talk about how Mortify is incredible. Mortify doesn't hit this card. So why not set up some Sorceress Spyglass decks and use those to contain these problematic permanents? Use them to check these card advantage engines in the form of Search for Ascanta out of the Nexus decks and shut down Teferis and just lean really hard on the spot removal, which is otherwise ineffectual against Planeswalkers. Because then you get beat up by Thief of Sanity, which is kind of why you need Plaguecrafter and Duress. But if you're like, so we're in different colors now, right? We're Teamer again. And Teamer is oh, okay. yeah, yeah, back yeah. to where you have this slam dunk of Niv-Mizzet, but it's like, oops, I get beat up by Teferi all the time. Or I have no meaningful ways to go over the top of Search for Ascanta once they get going. Well, just play some Spyglass. It's like everyone forgot that this is an option to control those problem points. Because if you're a Teamer, you're not concerned about... Thief of Sanity in the least. You're like, cute, Shiv and Fire, get out of my face. And, you know, you move on with the game plan. But well, Teamer has some other... it's awkward. Postport, it's awkward because you want to cut all your removal. Right, but at this point, you can't. And that's just not realistic. You know no, you'll be know, facing Thief of Sanity. But, but you just, like, how many how many copies do you keep in? You know, I was keeping in two and then uh, sort of banking on, like, the quenches or syncopates and stuff that I had in my deck. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And maybe we need to look harder for more diverse options. You know, if we're going back to something like Rakdos, obviously you have things like Bedevil, which could get some other targets, which is nice. But yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what the answer is, what number of spells you can potentially play in post-board games. And maybe that's another point in favor of Rakdos is they do have this removal spell that let's not forget we were all very excited about. And it's done, again, absolutely nothing. No Bedevils whatsoever in the format. So yeah, maybe that's a feather in Rakdos's cap again. Yeah, maybe. I mean, again, that's like pretty hard uh, on the color requirements. So probably moves you away from Chain Whirler back into like Spawn of Mayhem territory, but that's probably okay. Yeah, I I mentioned we were talking before the cast, like Spawn of Mayhem to me in these decks looks ugly and clunky and not elegant and at all in tune with what these decks are doing. But it's just big and dumb. And the same way we mentioned Tempest Jin being this big, dumb thing that we wanted to get rid of. Well, I tried cutting Tempest Jin from my mono blue decks, and it was ugly. And I was never satisfied. And I was like, oh, yeah, I need Tempest Jin. So maybe just some efficient beater like Spawn of Mayhem is acceptable. And you just need that early pressure. You know, pressure is the best form at times of negating your opponent's game plan. If they're focused on answering what you're doing, they can't implement their own ideas. So... Yeah, maybe Spawn of Mayhem is just a dumb, inelegant tool that's really effective at what it needs to do. Yeah, I mean, we also talked about how good Rekindling Phoenix is, and Spawn is one of those cards that's like, oh, it's weak to Lava Coil. But then you have all of these cards that must be Lava Coiled, plus you mm-hmm. have Kitesail Freebooter. So uh, you have a lot of different ways to actually pressure their removal, whereas Straight Rakdos, like the one that I'm playing, it's like, yeah, maybe I play a War Boss on three and like they need to Lava Coil it or whatever, but like War Boss, Chain Whirler, like they die to different stuff, you know? So having more things that just need to be Lava Coiled is good. Plus having just a bunch of like big flyers is very good against Mono Blue too. Oh yeah, for sure. They can all do the brick wall thing very effectively against those little attackers. So It'll be interesting to see what proves to be the best version of Rakdos. I know the default Japanese version does play those spawns right now. And certainly the version I've seen the most of on Arena. Will we see a lot of it this coming weekend at the GP? Who knows? I think time will tell. Yeah, that's that's the next thing that I'm going to be working on. And I don't know, like the deck is weird uh, for for people who are not familiar. It's basically like Freebooter, Rick's Mighty Reveler. 
two spawns, three Midnight Reapers, four Phoenix, three Siege Gang, three Eldest Reborns. There's like a million five drops effectively. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then some removal with like Cast Down, Carnival Carnage, Lava Coil, Bedevil. Or I'm sorry, there were Angrafts instead of Eldest Reborns, my bad. Right. And then and then like Memorial to Folly, Arch of Araska in the mana base. It is just mid-range mythic rares. That's it. But And gr- greedy to death. Like, here's yeah. my hand to five drops. Hope it works out. Yeah, a couple Chupacabras in there too. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to try like Gutter Bones, Four Spawn of Mayhem, uh, still keeping all the Midnight Reapers and stuff and, and just kind of going from there, but... That's interesting because one of the things that keeps popping up in my brain, and I will admit to not actually having sat down and built this yet, but some kind of black aggro deck that just has four drill bit main and is using that to control these incredibly powerful creatures that are currently running roughshod over the format and you know not losing equity in other matchups, just being a fine card in a bunch of spots. I don't know that black will always generate the damage I'm looking for to turn on drill bit. That's one of my big concerns. But I don't feel like that idea has really been explored whatsoever and could certainly have some potential. Having just a one mana Thoughtseize in your deck alongside your aggro plan, uh, it works. It's something we've seen done before. It's just a question of can black do it consistently? There are a lot of one drops in black, quite honestly. So maybe mono black can just be another one of these one drop aggro decks that we're talking about presently. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, that sort of deck would not be something that would be sustainable throughout right you know the the life the lifespan of the format it would very much be like oh this is the snapshot in time where this sort of deck is actually good but you think about gutter bones or diagraph ghoul even against like the mono white aggro decks and they just play things like tithe taker and snubhorn sentry and then you just can't turn on drill bit you can't turn on spawn and mayhem you just get shut down so easily and yeah vicious conquistador kind of does it but then you know maybe they just have a 2-2 to block with and like eat your creature so it kind of sucks but duress even duress main deck is just completely reasonable at this point because it's it's not great against sultai because they don't have a ton of hits but if you get to play it on like turn four, like the turn before they play Vivian or whatever, I think you are a favorite to probably get a card. It's just whether or not you can actually deal with having this potentially dead card until then. But certainly against like Drake's, Mono White, Mono Red, Mono Blue, Esper, Nexus decks, like the rest is incredible. Right. And it's one of the things that really pulled me to explore some other forms of the White Weenie decks was that I thought that Honestly, it's a better quote unquote reactive spell than something like negate in those decks. And I've talked at length about how I just don't buy these Azorius aggro decks. I'm not buying into the fact that this is what you're supposed to be doing in post-board games. I think there's a very good case for just being mono white and not worrying about your splash. And I think there's a case for a black splash as well, because you can use duress to do like more proactive disruption, which kind of leads me to my next question that I would really be trying to answer And that is, do we actually know what the best version of the white weenie deck is? And I don't think we do. And if you can't sell me on the fact that it's Azorius, if we do know what it is, it's just that it's mono white. But I I need to know about these other splashes too. Every single splash I think is on the table, maybe with the exception of green, that doesn't really add much, but at least red and black should be considered. And I feel like those options are both underexplored as we stand right now. It's mono white. It has to be because I'm not buying the whole nine sources of mana. Like you play the eight dual lands and then like a swamp or an island in your sideboard for four duress Mm -hmm. or four negate. I'm not buying that that's a thing because the amount of times that you have, you know, like glacial fortress in your opener and 
can't like or you have two glacial fortresses or you're trying to keep a one land with glacial fortress or whatever, or you have hollowed fountains in aggro mirrors and stuff like that. Like it just does not seem worth it. And it's not realistic to have nine sources to cast a four of card that you absolutely need. And if it's negate, it's a little bit easier because it's like, oh, I could draw this on turn five and still be fine. But I don't like the idea of, you know, drawing my black source on turn five and then, you know, duressing them and they have no cards or whatever. Like at least then you have negate for something they top deck. Right. And Benelish Marshall is probably too good to ignore. Like there's no setups where you should be doing like two of the splash color and not playing Benelish Marshall. That sounds pretty awful to me. I think we also mentioned last week, like the best negate is just unbreakable formation. It's the best negate you could ever have for your opponent's sweeper. So uh, you could certainly sell me in on the idea that you're supposed to just play, be playing straight white. And are people going to start doing that? I mean, that's the next question. Are people going to show up this weekend with just a straight white version? Or are we still going to be mucking around with this Azorius nonsense? I mean, if people have bad mana bases and they're playing white aggro decks, I think you just take your extra percentage points with whatever deck you're playing. And if they are playing mono white, like like that is probably what you should prepare for and test against because they're just going to have the best draws, you know? And I, I think mm. there's a lot of exploration to be done with, do you play uh Rustwing Falcon? What is your two drop? How many two drops? Uh, right. Tom Ross and I talked about potentially cutting Benelish Marshall and just like maxing on unbreakable formations and stuff like that. Like, I think there are a lot of different ways that you can actually tune this deck. And I think as far as the splashes are concerned, you should just not worry about it because you have... Baffling End, Honor Guard, a Johnny, and then, you know, you could add in some other spice, whatever you want, like more formations, more removal spells, whatever. Like you have a fine sideboard. It's not a good sideboard, but you have a sideboard. It's not like you are are necessarily hurting for things like Duress and Negate, and then you just bank on the fact that like you're threatening a turn four kill every game, and that's it. That's what your deck does. Yeah, aggression can be the best form of control, as we mentioned. So I buy that. I especially like the idea of like test against just based white. If you're testing for the Pro Tour, you have a deck you like, test it against the base white deck. It'll offer you the most explosive version of the deck, especially in pre-board games. It's like, don't give yourself that edge of playing against a just strictly worse game one deck. Assume people will figure it out. Get your matchup squared against the base white deck, and then you'll know more going forward. Yeah, it actually just floors me that people are like, okay, these deputy detentions are nonsense. I'll cut them, but I'll still play the eight dual lands. And (laughs) like, why are you blue? Yeah, Yeah. why are you blue? No, it's a very difficult question for me to answer. And uh, I think it's going to become a difficult question for everyone to answer as they eventually move towards no splash. So Abe Corrigan won the classic in Dallas. And I don't know what he played in the open, but he's been playing like Saltai and Esper and stuff like that, I think. So then he, he switched over to Azorius Aggro, won the classic, uh, played 20 lands, eight duels, no island in the sideboard, no deputy of detention, and cut a Benos Marshall for a third unbreakable formation. So he's he's getting there. He's getting to the point where it's, you know, the same stuff that we're talking about. It's like right. still and ends up having the negates in his sideboard. And I don't know. Maybe, maybe they were good. There were some some Nexus decks running around and everything, but whatever. Yeah, but like it's 
as a Nexus player, someone who has played Nexus a ton, I, those aren't the games I'm worried about where you have negate. If you have slowed yourself down on a relevant turn, that's probably still a win for me. The games I'm worried about where you just kill me on turn four before I can do anything. And yeah, you know, I don't get to do anything meaningful. I play my Wilderness Reclamation and I'm just dead. Those are the scary games from Mono White. I can beat your negates, I promise you, especially if you draw two. Please draw two negates and slow yourself down that dramatically. I'm begging you to do so. Yeah, start beating down white players. You'll you'll enjoy it. Yeah, and then play 20 planes. It looks nice, and you won't deal yourself damage, and that feels nice. Always feels good to have that that perfect mana base. Trust me, as a now mono blue player for the past few weeks. Oh, I love <laughs> it. It's just so crisp and clean. It feels good every time. You're you're still on 19 Islands? Uh, 19 Islands, yeah. No complaints yeah. about that. Still two Surge Mare main. I really like the Surge Mares, so... Uh, I haven't seen a reason to change. I've been winning a lot and it's tough to make meaningful changes when you find a lot of wins. I'm not going to say impossible. I've certainly done so in the past, but uh, I've been satisfied with my configuration. So yeah. Good. Yeah. I have to, I have to go back to testing that. Like I, I was in the phase of like, okay, figuring out what decks are the best. And then it was like, all right, here's the format. How do we actually fight that? Is there a way to do that? And Rekindling Phoenix, Plaguecrafter, Rick's Monty Reveler is definitely a thing you can do. I do think that you're, you know, sort of a dog in a lot of certain places, but it it is definitely a reasonable thing. Uh, and now it's getting back to the point where it's like, okay, like, what is the actual deck to play? It is getting close. And I mean, Mono Blue is just a good deck. And assuming that like White Aggro does not dominate this weekend or something, mm-hmm. if, if people don't have a reason to play White Aggro, then... I would be fine registering mono blue. Like I, I also have uh, this Twitch Rivals tournament the right, Wednesday before right, the Pro exciting. Tour. Yeah, so uh, I will be playing in that tournament and streaming it at standard best of three, forty eight players, and I don't know. Maybe I'll just play mono blue in that tournament and see how it goes. So this this translates pretty well to my next question, and it's a deck that we just haven't really talked about in any meaningful way throughout the course of this conversation, which is crazy given where we started this format, but mono red, it's it's just gone. There's no mono red left. And this is with the inclusion of skewer the critics and light up the stage, two cards, which have absolutely impressed me. No question they're there on power level, uh, but red's gone. So is it just not good enough or are there adaptions left, adaptations left for red to make that will actually put it on pace with the rest of these decks? Well, <laughs> Skewer specifically makes red this burn deck, right? You're just a bunch of lightning bolts and some card drawing and some consistent threats. And that sort of build really functions well in a best of one setting. And once you get into best of three, people figure out reasonable ways to sideboard against you and you don't really pick up much. Like you have lava coils, maybe some big threat like rekindling Phoenix, maybe some additional card drawing stuff and more things to kill big creatures, right? But your deck overall is pretty weak to blockers and consistent sources of damage. Like anyone who can race you, like you're you're just a dog against, right? Right. So there's also matchups like Esper Control, where when Esper first showed up, they played like two or three Moment of Cravings and Absorbs. They sideboarded Basilica Bell Haunts and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And it just made all of your burn spells so bad because basically every spell that Esper played, they also just countered an additional spell of yours. So you really needed to stick a card drawing thing, but you had like no way to beat Teferi, et cetera, et cetera. Like there are just a ton of problems. 
I think the real way to play mono red is to have ways to kill wild growth walker, which probably means playing lava coil main deck. And you need ways to beat the incidental life gain from Esper, which means playing more solid threats, which means you want to play things like maybe Legion War Boss, but definitely Rekindling Phoenix. And Light Up the Stage is still good. Instead of this card that you just jam on turn two because you know you're going to be able to play all your cards, you have to wait until like turn three or something in case you actually flip a four drop, you want to be able to play it on the next turn. Mm -hmm. You have to play a slower red deck effectively. And I think what that ultimately translates to is what we're talking about with like these big Rakdos decks. Right. Once you're incentivized to do that kind of stuff, you're incentivized to look for a splash because you're not as all in on just having all your lands perfectly untapped and curving out really aggressively. So you're pushed towards the second color, which in most cases is going to be Rakdos given the synergies there. You know, I phrased my problems with mono red as such. It doesn't have the tools to win on the battlefield presently, given how prevalent Wild Growth Walker, Jade Light Ranger setups are. So you, it's really difficult to find good attacks as the game goes along. Even Tempest Gin is like a very solid brick wall, uh, to say nothing of Surge Mare on top of that. So it doesn't feel like Red could win on the battlefield. So that incentivizes you to be a stack-based deck and to be a burn deck and to be a spell-based deck. And then that crumbles when, like you said, you run into the Esper deck and they just mitigate all of your your draw with like two for one you with every single spell they play via life gate. So it felt like there was just no place for mono red. You couldn't win on the battlefield. You couldn't win on the stack and you were left without a home. Consequently, I think you're right that more removal for wild growth Walker is absolutely paramount. And then finding some way to leverage stickier threats is going to be the next thing. Rekindling Phoenix is the future of mono red. Although I don't know if it will be quite mono red. I do think like some build of mono red can still work. It's just not clear to me if it should. Like, is it just the worst version of Rakdos? And I think in a lot of instances, the answer will be yes, unless you're able to really lean hard on Chain Whirler and like really need it on turn three to stem some kind of battlefield presence. You know, if these mono white decks go really hard into one drops, right? They're just all about like healers, hawks. Then you can totally see straight mono red having a chance to shine with really consistent turn three chain whirlers. But as it stands, I do like Rakdos quite a bit more than just the base mono red right now. Yeah, I agree because we're, we're talking about getting either consistent sources of damage or things that can win on the battlefield and playing things like Rekindling Phoenix does that, or even more removal plus Legion War Boss, that, that does that. Mm-hmm. And then once you're in that sort of setup, it's like, well, I don't really want Viachino Pyromancer. That doesn't really accomplish a whole lot for what I'm trying to do. So then you want Rick's Monty Reveler. You're talking about playing eight black duels, which I think is fine. And then it's just like, well, why aren't I just Rakdos? Like the answer is Chain Whirler, obviously, but if you decide that you don't need Chain Whirler, then it's like, well, you start looking at what the Japanese have been doing. Yeah, I think that's, it's like kind of a natural progression. It's where you'd expect the format to go, given everything happening around these red decks. Yeah, and and there are some more aggressive Rakdos decks that have been doing well on Magic Online too, that are very much about like Skewer the Critics, Lightning Strike, Fireblade Artists, and stuff like that, just being a little bit more aggressive. And I think that plan is fine too, but when you start playing against cards like Absorb, Moment of Craving, Wild Growth Walker, you don't want the stuff that is just aggression, right? Like mm-hmm. you want your cards to be a little bit more versatile. And then, yeah, it's just like about playing big fat flyers, right? And that becomes like a reasonable game plan. Yep, back to the world of Rekindling Phoenix, which is a fine place to be. Maybe some Scargan Hellkite gets in the mix. Who knows? Plenty of options for the big red flyers. I agree things need to look more like last season's red decks than 
present red decks if they're going to find any success. Yeah. So I, I'm basically down to my last question that I would be asking if I was spending this week preparing for the Pro Tour. And this is one I always have to ask myself. And sometimes it's one that I should probably just leave on the table and not necessarily bring up because it can waste a lot of time and lead to a lot of unfruitful games. But I want to know if there's any way to just completely dodge what's going on in this format, play a different game than everyone else is going to show up at the Pro Tour playing. And by that, I mean something goofy like, you know, an eight discard spell mono black aggressive deck falls under that category. I think of something like, a mono removal Gaia's Blessing deck where you just grind your opponents to dust and your deck is all removal and counter spells and that's it. Anything that just isn't interacting under the typical terms that every other deck in this format is interacting under. You know, we sit here and say, this is important, this is important, this is important. And whatever choice you bring doesn't care about any of those things whatsoever. It's just on a completely different universe. Have you seen anything like that that's caught your eye? For me, there hasn't really been anything, you know, goofy wilderness reclamation decks aside uh things like primal amulet stuff they just don't feel realistic to me as it stands they're all too vulnerable to negate really and it's too much of a linchpin of the format for me to really go down this rabbit hole all that far based on how esper is set up i could actually see a world where you do just load up on fresca's contempts and ways to kill planeswalkers make sure that you kill teferi and whatever their other win condition is, and then just grind people out. I, I would not be looking to play a strat like that at the Pro Tour because I don't really want to play eight 50-minute rounds. Right. Or I guess five 50-minute rounds. But Sultai seems tough, especially in the post-board games, because they have a lot of ways to actually just pick you apart. And like you would need to resolve a lot of card drawing to keep up with what they're doing with, you know, Vivian Hydrogress is fine, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But... I think mono removal and life gain based on how Esper is set up now where they effectively have no win conditions main deck and their win condition like a chromium or a couple copies of Karn or whatever, like you can you can still beat that, you know? Uh, like So I do think you'd be fine against Esper. You could be fine against like mono blue, mono white. If you had enough life gain, you'd be fine against mono red. But there are decks like Gates and the Nexus decks that will just go over the top of you and you can't beat them. Right. You can't just sit there forever against those decks. That is not a viable strategy. You could unmoored ego them. Main deck unmoored ego anyone? I hope yeah. not. I hope things don't come to that point. I, I mean, that is probably what it would take, honestly. If if you wanted to actually have a shot against Nexus, I'm not sure how you really beat the gate decks, I guess, because they have like Colossus and I mean, it depends on their list. Like all the lists are so different. Like some of them just have Nexus and some creatures that you can kill or whatever, but Right. The ones that yeah. the ones that I, I was playing were like Colossus and A Rhythm of the Wilds, and you just like draw a bunch of cards and then play a bunch of hasty things in the same turn. Oh yeah, that would be quite ugly for a deck set up the way we're talking about. Again, unless they had on Ego. Uh so please, no psychos out there. Don't don't build this deck. Don't do it to yourself. I, I, these ideas always capture my eyes though, because this is how you like run over a pro tour. And it happens so rarely that the time investment that I think both myself and a lot of other people spend on these type of ideas is not always in your best interest. I I guess basically if I have to talk you into the strategy, it's probably not the place to be. But if there's something that does just strike on this really unique axis, you know, give it a couple hours, put something together and look at it. I, I don't have anything super exciting right now. The model removal guy's blessing type ideas are the only thing that really sprung up. 
but it seems like it'd be very hard to get all those pieces in line and probably leave yourself with some new vulnerability somewhere else. So uh, yeah, take this advice at your own risk. Yeah, I I think there is a problem with how polarized this format is because normally you see like a healthy amount of mid-range decks, right? And obviously Saltai falls under that camp, but Hydroid Crassus just gives you a way to like bury everyone. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of going super long. Esper's going super long. Nexus is like the ultimate go over the top of you, go long deck. And then you have these decks that have a bunch of one drops in their deck. And there's no real room for middle ground. And since there aren't those middle ground decks, people are already doing like the polar opposites. You just can't find a way to like ignore what people are doing because both ends of the spectrum in the format are already kind of doing that. Right. I see what you're saying. So what should I play? What should I play at this PT? How much is it going to hinge off of uh, Memphis results? Yeah, I think in the absence of like a huge breakout weekend for aggro, I would be inclined to have the best mono blue list. I think it's very difficult to go wrong with that choice. It's a somewhat safe choice. I, I think you just come with game against everyone. You 6-0 your draft and then you ride it from there. You know, that's kind of the key to a good Pro Tour finish is often a really good draft performance. It's much harder to break a constructed format, especially one that's been played as much of the, as this constructed format. It feels like given the prevalence of Arena, given the just dearth of streamers there are now, it's like more magic is being put in front of us than has ever been put in front of us. And it seems like if there was something just completely busto, I mean, it doesn't feel like people are being super secretive. I know there's still obviously secretive discussion going on, but a lot has been done out in the open in the buildup to this Pro Tour. And just accidentally, like someone would have accidentally played something insane on stream at some point and, you know, word would have very quickly propagated. And it has to some extent, you know, you see this Japanese Rakdos deck pop up all over the place and you see something like Nexus of Gates gained a lot of, you know, traction very quickly because people were picking up, because people were showing what these decks were capable of. And I think that really disqualifies anything too off the wall happening. I say that with a hint of fear as now I'm prone to get blown out by some crazy left field deck. But uh, yeah, I, I like mono blue as it stands right now. Just a good solid deck with game against everything is a nice place to be for a pro tour. Man, I hope that Drake's what would be the best scenario. I don't want Drake's to do well because I don't want people to play it, even though I think it's a bad deck because this is, this is all under... Like the I want to play mono blue at the PT camp, right? Mm-hmm. If if people do well with Drakes, obviously I can find a deck to be good against that. But if people do well with Drakes, that's going to be bad. If people do well with mono white aggro, that's that's going to be bad. You want mono red to like crush or even Rakdos? Because let me tell you something. If so, like if Rekindling Phoenix is everywhere, you said you were dying for a reason to play four essence captures in your deck, and you're going to have it if Rekindling Phoenix shows up everywhere. And you can set yourself up to be fine against those red decks. I'm telling you, there's like reasonable setups against Rekindling Phoenix decks. You don't, you shouldn't be doing them right now. There's just not enough Rekindling Phoenix. And that's why you feel bad when you see Rekindling Phoenix across the table, because your deck isn't set up for it. And you don't have like a stack of deep freezes, and you don't have War Kite Marauders, and you don't have four essence captures. But if you needed to, you could. And if Mono Red dominated this weekend, you'd be in such a good spot going into the Pro Tour. Yeah, that is true. Uh, I mean, I I don't see traditional Mono Red actually doing well, but oh well. Can cross out your fingers for a bigger style of Red to do fine. Maybe the Rakdos deck does propagate across, across an ocean and take over America very quickly. We'll see. We'll see what happens this weekend. 
Yeah, I could really see that, actually. So, as always, we asked our patrons uh, for a question this week, and the question we selected comes from Jeff Pica. And Jeff asks, what is the best thing you guys have done for a sweetheart that you recommend we try next year? And uh, I assume the show is going up on Valentine's Day, so it seems rather appropriate. Uh, Yeah, good timing, obviously. I don't know if I'm such a fan of Jeff's timing. Why are you waiting so long, Jeff? Get to action now. You don't have to wait till next year. Get hustling. You still have, well, as of recording this, you still have two days. Use your psychic powers to understand we're telling you this right now. There's no reason to wait. Look, I don't want to be a naysayer of Valentine's Day. I'm glad people appreciate it. And it's a, a great thing to show love to the people in your lives. But do it all the time. Don't wait for Valentine's Day. Don't don't use these holidays as the only time to make someone feel special. Make the people you care about feel special every single day of the year. It's worth so much more than any you know, grand dramatic gesture. I've done a few and I think they have often gone over well, but ultimately the strength you'll form in a relationship are just about those daily interactions and always being there for the person in your life. So start doing that immediately, Jeff. That's step one. Step two, plan a trip to Costa Rica. I loved Costa Rica. Something like beachfront in Costa Rica would be a really nice dramatic gesture. And uh, I'm sure your significant other would appreciate that. What if you're broke? If you are broke, hitchhike to Costa Rica? No, that's not safe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you're broke, I, I honestly, I think that's fine. There's nothing wrong with being broke. I've been broke for many Valentine's Day, many just relationships throughout my life. And again, it's not about these gestures and gifts and things you can purchase. It's just about being a good partner and supporting the people in your life and putting out a constant outflow of love uh, to your partner and to the world. And it's just a net positive for everyone involved. Yeah, I, I basically agree with your take. There was a long period in my life where I was not very high on holidays in general, just because like the whole idea of them sort of sucks to me where it's like, all right, this is your birthday. This is the the one day out of 365 days a year where people are supposed to say they like you and care about you or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was I was just like, yeah, I don't buy into that. I do think that you should just be doing things all the time, like as you think of them or whatever, for whatever grand gesture you're thinking about, you know, doing next year on Valentine's Day. What if you just did it on like a random Tuesday? It's worth you know, so much when, more. Yeah. And it, it, it just shows exactly how much you care and you think about them and stuff like that. And I think waiting until a specific day is completely fine. It's reasonable. It is expected. It's like the social norm and everything. But like, just do that that stuff more often. I think that's wonderful advice. And I'm also thrilled to hear you generally don't put too much stock in holidays because I just looked over at my bookshelf and saw your still unfinished Christmas present sitting there. And this is <laughs> a very nice reminder that I do need to finally complete this gift as we creep on into February. I had it before Christmas. I really did, Jerry. I just have not finished it still. But you reminded me. I see it. At some point, we'll have you open your Christmas gift on the show, probably like June, July-ish we're shooting for. So uh, like it should 2020? be an exciting day. Yeah, yeah. It'll be really exciting for everyone. No, man, I still haven't gotten you yours either, so it's all good. Sweet. I know what I want to get, though, as always. Nice. But yeah, I for for a while, I just refused to buy in. I was just like, don't give me Christmas presents. I don't want to participate. Like, I wouldn't tell people my birthday. And, you know, I, I just wanted to opt out of the system entirely. But now it's now it's kind of whatever, you know, like if if people want to 
show their love that way, then I do not have a right to say no to them. You know what right. I mean? But totally this agree. is this is how I want to participate in the system where it's like, if I care about you, you will know it. And if you don't, then I'm doing a horrible job. Right. I think that's a good way of looking at it. And my wife and I actually generally don't celebrate Valentine's Day. We try and just be good to each other all the time. You know, we'll get each other little tidbits here and there, but it's not a particularly large day for us. Try and live every day like it's Valentine's Day. I don't know if I succeed at that. She'll have to be a guest on the show and let all you folks know if I am living up to that creed. I try though. I think I do most instances. What about you? Do you think you're an everyday is Valentine's Day type person to your significant other? I'd like to think that. I mean, certainly I have good days and bad days, you know, Right. but that like things, things come up where it's like, oh, this would be really cool. You know, like maybe I see an ad for something or I find something that would be really cool or they mention something, you know, and it's like, I try to keep that stuff in the back of my mind. And then sometimes I can't help myself and it's like, I'll, I'll just do everything at once. But realistically, I think it's good to like spread it out a little bit, you know? Sure. Yeah. Bring joy on a bunch of days. I think you're good at that too. I think you're good at like seizing on little things that someone said and holding them. So I'm I'm sure your partner appreciates that. I am now, you know, but like before I certainly wasn't right. But like it takes a conscious effort for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. All these things are learned skills. Like it's very easy to write them off as, oh, I'm just not that type of person. I don't think that way. And I've, I've said these things before. I've been that person before. So like, don't take this as me hating on you for having the stance. I'm just saying that my life is better when I'm in the spot. Like I can be that person. I can work harder to achieve those things for people. I can notice things that people say and, you know, have surprises for them in the future. Uh, it's just an effort. And I think once you incentivize yourself to put in the effort, it comes a lot easier. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I mean, it does take effort, but it makes me feel good. It makes them feel good. And, you know, I I think just the the day-to-day stuff is a lot happier and healthier as a result rather than just waiting for one day every 365 days. Good plan. Good plan. Constant love is definitely game. That's game. Good luck.